0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar Listener Q&A show. Oh boy, final, final day of January. Sun is beginning to set here in a rainy but warm Northern California. Got back from Daytona after 12 days in Florida for the Rolex 24. Late Monday night, took Tuesday off. That was really good. And then just had a day here mostly spent on the phone. The things we're going to get into on the show, uh, I'm going to crack open here with the whole Andretti Global, Andretti Racing pitch desire and application to join Formula One and F1's, oh my goodness, response. One other item too there before we get rolling, questions about, push to pass hybridization on the IndyCar front and a whole bunch of other great things all assembled by our friend, Jerry Sudduth. gathers all your questions, puts them in a hopefully amusing order. Take hour or less sometimes over if you're a long time listener, you know, that was a bit of a lie. Uh, yeah, they tend to be more than an hour, but we'll see if we can keep it to sub one hour here. Also, Really big thanks to all of y'all for your questions. Like we are super deep into the off season and nearly 2000 words worth of questions come through. According to Jerry, a lot of them super awesome. Quick note to close before roll in a happy little piece for you here. Hopefully, uh, Prue day. It's our listener group formed on its own, just really fun and amazing, incredibly diverse group. Age and every faction of life and humanity is represented. If you'd like to join them, they gather, get together every day, have a dedicated Discord channel, and talk about life, racing, the universe, and everything. Really positive, really fun, often funny group, many of whom have become great friends who gather at the track, go racing together, go to the events as a group. Look at the description here. I have everything you need to know about sending an email to join the group. Met a bunch of y'all last weekend in Daytona, which was fantastic. Did a bit of a public podcast crossover weekend sports car show with my co-host Graham Goodwin and I, and then Alexander Rossi and James Hinchcliffe, better known as Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. I'll post that here this week. Hopefully that was a blast, but just got to meet more amazing Prude folks and also Many of y'all who've been in there for years. So if you're looking for a new racing family, check out the description, join the Day. Just amazing folks. So before we get rolling here with a little bit of stuff to talk about before your questions, time to say a big thank you to our show partners on the Marshall Pruitt podcast, starting with FAF Technologies, build-to-print composites manufacturing company. They're specializing in medium-to-large-scale automotive, motorsports, and military applications. Visit FAFFTechnologies.com, P-F-A-F-F-Technologies.com to learn more about their services and how they can benefit your business. Next, it's the Justice Brothers, makers of premium additives, lubricants, and cleaners, and servicing the automotive and motorsports industries for more than 85 years with victories in all the biggest North American motor races, including the Indianapolis 500, the 24 Hours of Daytona, justice brothers products are truly race proven learn about their vast history and range of offerings at justicebrothers.com if you're fond of awesome motor racing collectibles including FAF motorsports mclaren gear and goodies pay a visit to torontomotorsports.com and finally we have a new online merchandise home for the podcast the thepruittstore.com all the show stickers models racing memorabilia i'm trying to sell and put towards our fund to buy a house is now live and rocking the Pruittstore.com. Genuinely happy to have the Pruitt store up and running, have a lot of things that I need to add in, including some new Gilles de Ferran tribute stickers and a variety of other stuff as well. So it's on my to-do list this week. All right, let's kick off here with Andretti racing, I believe is the name of how they entered into that desired proposal that application to join formula one we know the team itself has been rebranded across every form of racing as Android global that's what i'll just refer to them here going forward but had this announcement from fom formula one management today that and i say this in all honesty it's not a hot take it's not any of that it's just honest couple of immediate reactions having read The manifesto, because I think that's the correct word for such a thing, 20 bullet points from FOM denying Andretti Global's application. If folks who wrote that and conceived that have not already been fired by FOM slash Liberty Media, which owns Formula One, FOM, if those folks have not been fired, I will be shocked and I don't say this in some alarmist kind of way. I hate their decision, therefore I'm reacting loudly and saying folk should be fired. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying strictly as someone who spends their life doing this kind of sort of media stuff and who receives dozens, if not a hundred plus. Emails per day from various teams and tracks and organizations and sanctioning bodies and all kinds of stuff, sharing whatever thing it is that they're trying to convey. I, like many others uh, who are motor racing reporters, sports reporters, inboxes are flooded with stuff every day. I can say without any hyperbole or any extra spice added, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like what. FOM sent out today about Andretti Formula Racing LLC application to participate in the FIA Formula One World Championship summary and conclusion of commercial assessment process should clarify up front. Now this is an IndyCar show we're talking about Andretti though. There are some strong IndyCar type routes that we'll cover off here in a moment, but for those who don't follow F1 super close, haven't been fully up to speed on all this or given much of a fart, I probably fall into that category at times as well. Uh, just spoke with a IndyCar driver a couple of minutes ago who was saying, "Hey, what? So what's the deal? I thought I read a thing not so long ago. I don't know, November, December, something where Formula One said they would love to have Andretti and F1, and they're all good to go and come on in." I said, "Well, you got to draw that line first, right? That was not Liberty Media slash FOM, the folks who own and." control the business side of formula one who can play who can't play the fia it's president those are the folks who said andretti thumbs up love to have you you're good in our eyes that's the sanctioning body those are not the folks who decide whether andretti or any other team can play so it was a great gesture of support but ultimately one that held no power. What we have today, this being January 31st, at least the timing of the release that I got it was 7.34 a.m., this is from the folks who wield the true power to say yay or nay. Now, I need to back up a little bit and say, as I mentioned in a tweet, this is not a surprise. This should not have come as a surprise the proverbial writing was on the wall from almost day one that nope the folks who control f1 are not interested have to imagine the existing 10 entrants almost the majority of whom have said we do not want andretti slash an 11th entrant in f1 financial dilution etc many of the reasons cited This has been a very clear thing with no serious, radical, or even marginal change in tone from FOM or the majority of the team principals, team owners. So today's decision should not have come as a shock. The way in which this was conveyed, that is the alarming everybody who got the email I've shared the the full thing on my at Marshall Pruitt X. It's strange calling it X. It's still Twitter in my head. X feed, and I'm sure thousands of others have shared the same thing. 20 bullet points broken into three categories. Is it three or is it four? No, four categories. Introduction, review process, general conclusions of commercial assessment. I'm serious when I say If folks who crafted this wrote it or conceived it, if not all of the above, were not fired after it went out by those above them who maybe uh, there had to be one or two people who had not signed off. on. There's always at least one or two people somewhere high atop who were a little bit out of the loop. There has to be some folks let go. And for this single reason, I don't know how many words this is. I didn't actually go and check. I will do that right now. But to think of a public response to a Formula One team's application to participate in its series, that is, and that has not been a public application process, meaning the words, offers, and everything within and ready's and whomever else's were not made public for everyone to see to then make this decision fully public in 20 bullet points and i'm looking now 1411 words when's the last time i'll just call it f1 when's the last time formula one said 1411 words about anything especially during the off-season. This is bizarre. So here's just a couple of quick takeaways, and then we'll move on to the heart of the show. At 1,400-plus words, 20 bullet points, this is absolutely a manifesto. Such things should never be aired publicly, just like those applications. Strange to me, sad to me, that on one end, massive privacy non-disclosure agreements required on the front end but on the back end hey let's take this whole thing crazy public embarrass the living poop out of it michael andretti dan taurus mark walter all the the big names and the the big financiers behind this let's embarrass the living crap out of them publicly gotta say a little bit counter it's not as if Andretti has been totally clean over the last couple years while trying to get in they have certainly said some things that are spicy without a doubt challenged f1 there's right this hasn't been total angelic everything on andretti side all along no doubt in this day and age that seems to often give the green light for someone in reaction to that to go just as hard if not harder I just don't see this as being a situation that F1 should grant itself that permission. Be the really classy organization. If you don't like the people applying, if you don't like the tone they've taken, if you don't like the public aspect of how they've done some of this, really used a lot of media, especially in the first six months or so, to try and plead their case and apply pressure to F1, you don't like those things, I fully get it. They've expressed that in their own ways before. But in this final judgment to have gone this direction, it makes me think so much less of Formula One than I've ever wanted to think. So the 20 bullet points should have been replaced by a single paragraph. Write it however you want in general, It should have said something along the lines of, after a long and diligent review process, FOM has decided the timing is not correct to grant Andretti's request to participate in Formula One in 2025, period. We look forward to engaging in ongoing dialogue with Andretti, General Motors, and its Cadillac brand on the topic of forming and fielding an entry, creating a bespoke power unit, and what could be possible in the future for their admission to Formula One. Period. Done. Single paragraph. We reviewed it. It's not right for us right now. We're not saying no to the future. We'd like to keep talking. We're making no promises, but we're at least letting you know, well, now isn't the time and we're not promising there ever will be a time. Let's keep talking because that might change. Write that in three to four sentences. Send that out. Everybody who reads it says, yep, that's exactly what I was expecting. And, Nobody, by and large, is torching F1 right now for the pardon my verbiage, shitty response. They should be embarrassed. And I'm not just saying this because, like Michael Andretti and the Andretti team and they're American and I'm it, that has nothing to do with any of it. It truly doesn't. This could be about any proposed F1 entrant trying to get in. In being denied, at least at this moment. I think of F1 with a very historical mindset, having followed it for the first time starting in 1978. It was a big point of pride in our household, Mario Andretti, and what ended up being his Formula One World Championship. My father was all in. It was nothing but a huge thing for us. I was, I think, seven years old. And whatnot when it was going on, but this was a massive thing in our household. Loved F1 in and around 78, and it has been one of my true passions ever since. I realized that I make a living working in IndyCar, make a living working in IMSA and sports cars, do a little bit of coverage of some other things, but separate from all that, F1 has truly been a giant part of my life since I was a kid, since I was single digit age. So just sharing all of this, I think about Formula One with a bit of depth and context and decades. This response is unlike anything I have ever thought would come from F1 and certainly something that I think is by no means befitting of their long and proud history. So sad for them. This is also something where coming back, to close on the 20 bullet points, you send out that single paragraph statement. You then engage with Andretti and any other of the principals involved and say, hi, this is what's going out. If you would like to engage on the real and in-depth reasons, many of them very non-complementary, here is a quadruple NDA for you to sign. You sign that, and within that agreement it says, if you ever reveal any of these 20 bullet points, you will forever be forbidden from filing an application or having that application accepted to compete in Formula 1. If this is a message they truly wanted to convey in a classy way to Andretti, there were better solutions than the one they chose. So, sad for them. A couple of other quick things here too came to mind that what say they do keep going right within those all the different bullet points offered things talking about well if you tried to build your own power unit instead of rebranding an existing one Cadillac 2028 could be possible farther down the road again they didn't say no but just in this crazy thing that they wrote they laid out the possibility for being possibly accepted in the future and if we're looking at some of the recent plans last year's signing of colton Herta to a long and the most lucrative contract we've heard of an indycar in decades that was certainly done with an eye or an intent of drafting colton into formula one realized there's the whole super license thing and he'd have to earn the points through much stronger championship finishes. Again, I get that it wasn't just a a straight welcome into F1 if Andretti got that application approved, but I do know that thinking about the rejection today, it did stand out that, boy, if they were to keep trying and keep going, Colton might be 27 or 28 years old as a rookie in F1 if all these things aligned and they got in if... General Motors went forward. If General Motors kept spending, or I shouldn't say kept, were to commit giant sums of money to create its own power unit to try and get on the grid in 2028, and if Andretti and Towers and Walters and such decided to spend, I don't know what the number is, is it 50 million a year, next year, and the year after, and the year after, more staff building out, right, they're Big giant base, all the technology needed, purchasing of everything, wind tunnel model, chassis. Right, Just because they've been told no now doesn't mean that everything stops unless they decide to accept what appears to be reality, which is F1 saying, no, we're we're really not swayed, nor are we giving you any green light to come in three, four years down the road. Uh, If you do the things we want you to do, do they keep burning tons of cash with no promise that they will be allowed in in 2028? That would seem pretty wild to me, y'all. That would seem, frankly, like a giant waste of money. So what direction do you go? I don't know. But I'd hate to know that with no promise of getting in, if they did the things that f1s telling them they would want them to do how crazy would it be to learn that they committed to 2025 26 27 just kind of this phantom operation with no promise of being able to race in formula one continuing to burn money on the hope they would be accepted i don't know where they go but it doesn't seem to make a crazy amount of sense to me to keep burning money having just been really harshly and publicly rebuked with only the smallest glimmer, as I interpreted it, of hope offered at the end of that manifesto. So what do they do? I don't know. I, I, they don't want to talk about it. They obviously released a statement rebuking F1's rebuke. They're already involved in NASCAR on the Andretti side, having bought in a bit with Spire. Does this lead to a decision or an attempt to buy more charters and go hardcore into NASCAR with two to three cars and and who knows how much? But if F1's not it, the only other two places I can think of where Andretti Global is not racing in a either at all capacity or in a big capacity, the first one's domestically in NASCAR. Got to believe there's a decent amount of money they could make if they were there. They'd need to buy some very expensive charters. Those are said to go for $25 million or more. Other option would be the FI World Endurance Championship. You wouldn't do that without a manufacturer saying you wanted to do that, to do that, to pay for that. And while I've heard that the Wayne Taylor Racing with Andretti IMSA GTP program now two car effort in the WeatherTech sports car championship have heard for a while. I think others do too. They've spoken about it a little bit on the Acura side now called HRC us Honda racing corporation, United States does have an interest in bringing their Acura air X 06 hybrid GTP cars to the FIWEC. Could that be a 2025, 2026 thing have to see, but It would be amazing to see the Andretti name competing at Le Mans again. Obviously, Father Mario Andretti, class winner in 1995. Marco Andretti, Michael's son, has competed there. That was pretty awesome. I believe with the Rebellion team was there uh, to chronicle that when Marco was there, I think, once or twice. Michael, been there as well as a driver. Awesome stuff. But Andretti Global never competed at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So that could be a pretty amazing thing to expand into. NASCAR and going really hardcore there could be an interesting thing, but F1's the place that he's dreamt of. There's the potential promise of huge financial gains there. That's why folks have invested so heavily in trying to make this happen. Beyond the passion side, there is the This is the biggest form of racing in the world in terms of potential profit output. So here you're left. They are left to answer to close on whether they want to keep pushing and spending gobs of money with no promise of it leading to anywhere or to reroute to compared to F1, second tier with NASCAR in terms of profile and profitability or third tier with the FIWEC. that's not critical of the WC, love it truly love it just not something that has a massive international profile and certainly a very minimal profile here in the U.S. but where does Andretti Autosport go just called it Andretti Autosport I'll keep that in I keep making that mistake Andretti Global my apologies Does this effectively end Colton Herta's ambitions of competing in Formula One? Does this move Andretti's potential interests to participating in other series? We'll find out. I just hope they don't keep beating their heads against the wall and spending outrageous sums for no particular reason, since it's very clear Formula One does not want them as they are. All right, let's get rolling with your questions. Uh, Jerry, thanks once again. You do a delightful job of bringing them to us. I don't know if there's a way to do a bit of a virtual clapping for Jerry, but nonetheless, we have a heck of a bunch of good questions leading off with, let me find it. Uh, It wasn't placed P1, but I'm going to bump it to P1 as soon as I find it from our dear friend, truly one of the, the, coolest folks i've met in many years that being cassie cassie johnson aka at mama underscore g force please follow her on the good old x if you don't she is asking mp i'm trying to wrap my non car person mind around how the push to pass and the hybrid systems will work or don't work together she asks will the hybrid completely replace push to pass and if so does that mean we will see regular push to pass for the first half of the season while we're not hybrid and then see it go away in the second half of the season when we do go hybrid awesome questions and yet another thank you to you Cassie I thought I understood everything and knew exactly how to answer your question but just to be sure I reached out to the series and said hi could you help me confirm a couple things and was told, no, you knucklehead, we've changed a couple things. So it's good you asked, because had you answered it just off the top of your dome, you would have been wrong. So here's what's happening, Cassie. And I think this is really cool, like really cool. So had IndyCar gone hybrid as planned, here in March at St. Petersburg, done the full 17-round calendar hybrid, I think we might have simply relied on the electronic horsepower punch provided by the energy recovery system to be the new singular push-to-pass method. That's what had been discussed by IndyCar for a long, long time. It will replace turbo push-to-pass, which we've had since 2012. Since we're not going hybrid at St. Pete and IndyCar is yet to say exactly when thinking again sometime late June, somewhere in July, maybe they'll tell us exactly when we will indeed go racing with the full MGU installed in the bell housings, the motor generator units, which have the super capacitor packs mounted right on top of them stuffed into that bell housing. What they're going to do is this. We're going to race as usual to start the season with turbocharger provided extra power. That's the push to pass. Press the button. IndyCar says exactly how many seconds per race of push to pass you get. They tailor it based on the length of the event and so on. And it is a command, an electronic command to the turbocharger wastegates, which are electric to hold and make more power for this specific amount of time, however much time you choose, within that 100 seconds, 120 seconds you have total during the race. So it's strictly an electronic command, as we've had for the past 12 years or whatever it is, of press the button, turbo system is told to make more power, about 40 or so horsepower while it's activated, and then when it's deactivated, goes back to the, normal amount of boost on road and street courses when we get to that undefined point cassie summertime when we do go hybrid we're not switching over strictly to the energy recovery system which we think they haven't defined the exact number how much power that's going to contribute when it's raging hard thinking right now is 50 to 60 horsepower believe it's probably going to end up closer to 60 so i'll just go with that under the old thought process and old plans once we went hybrid it was just going to be that electronic horsepower punch same kind of thing same kind of activation the new plan and i'm told this is not going to change is once we go hybrid (laughs) we're going to keep the turbo push to pass as well and i Loved hearing every word of that cast because it means that along with the 2.2-liter twin-turbo V6 motors made by Chevrolet through their partners at Ilmore Engineering in Michigan, also big huge base in the UK, friends at HRC US based in California, Honda and their 2.2-liter twin-turbo V6s, those make. A little over 700 horsepower, who knows what the exact number is, but they say somewhere between 725, 750 or so. It's about right in full high boost road and street course and short oval configuration. That means in select scenarios, once we go hybrid, we will have the ability for drivers to say click, extra turbo boost, push to pass, and boop, Extra (laughs) electronic horsepower being fired back to the rear tires through the MGU. If you take that peak 750 internal combustion engine horsepower, the extra 40 or so being chucked in, maybe a little more through the turbo push to pass, plus that approximate 60 horsepower contributed by the ERS unit, for a moment for a brief period not an entire lap but again while both are activated for however many seconds the driver chooses we could be at about 850 horsepower and again i love everything about that cast so answer to your question is this just as you describe since we're not going hybrid until mid-season we'll stick with the old turbo base push to pass only because it's all we got When we do go hybrid, we're going to get the extra electronic horsepower drivers can ask for, and we're going to keep the turbo push-to-pass and get both, and I love every single thing about that, and we greatly appreciate you, Cassie, all the amazing fellowshipping, friendships you create, charity drives you do to help folks. Like, seriously, you guys probably heard me mention this before, but uh, I can think of, of few people. To do more to promote and give love and encourage the growing of IndyCar's tribe than Cassie. So if you aren't following her, it's at M-A-M-A, mama, underscore, G-Force. Let's go to Andrew Miller, saying testing times are always meaningless, with two exclamation points, Andrew. Holy cow. One exclamation point, kind of serious. Two, I am standing in awe my friend says that said penske looks slow i think andrew would be referring to the non-hybrid test at homestead last week that i attended one day of at least he says discuss sorry i'm drinking a little bit of coffee uh yeah um i'm still on east coast time and my body's telling me hey dummy go to sleep uh any general agreements on how much different the old dw12 chassis drives with the new parts minus the hybrid amongst the drivers. Um, it's not a big enough weight reduction, Andrew, to where any of them were like, wow, night and day. I can really feel it. The car's heavy enough, tipping the scales at nearly two thousand pounds and like start the race full fuel trim to where knocking thirty-one to thirty-five pounds off of it with the lightweight components for twenty twenty-four. Uh, pre-dropping that hybrid in there Um, it's yeah when you've got something that is 1900 plus pounds and you take 30 pounds off of it it's just a crazy tiny tiny percentage drop and so to the drivers that I spoke with and I asked all of them about this while I was at Homestead they all said can't feel it in terms of balance, driving sensation, acceleration, braking, transition, handling, and whatnot. Can't feel it, but you see it in the lap times. So that's where the improvement is really going to be generated. Not in the, it feels so much better to drive improvement, but we're hauling less weight. Therefore, lap times will improve because lighter vehicle, definitely going to be faster. Um, Penske did not look, crazy fast indeed um i'll just share this because i didn't have enough time to do any kind of in-depth uh deep dive with the team and go to every corner and try and break it all down i was there for like six hours and had a lot to do while there but they didn't look crazy fast this is homestead right it's a low grip track not amazing they were good terms of Team Penske at St. Pete last year, for sure, right? Scott McLaughlin challenging Romain Groschamp for the lead, running really strong there. Andretti's were pretty strong on street courses, obviously. Kyle Kirkwood winning at Long Beach and then later at Nashville. Detroit, Ganassi was really quick there. Alex Pillow, Um It's not as if the Penske cars were terrible on low-grip street courses, but at least at Homestead, very low-grip Roval. They didn't seem to stand out across the three days of non-hybrid testing. So you're spot on there. The thing I was going to mention that is a thing that I hear and have continued to hear from those who are not using the Honda engines. There's a concern that Honda might be a leg up to start the season. Did they find something during the off season? Again, don't know. Are they showing everything, not showing everything? Is Chevy showing everything? Chevy is famous for not going crazy in preseason testing with max power. Get to St. Pete, and then usually it's like, ooh, there they are. So a lot of that stuff to consider, Andrew. But just to close, I can tell you there's a suspicion outside of the Honda camp that Hondas might have found some heat during the offseason. Uh, our pal Jeremiah Marshall, Jack Harvey, putting in two days of testing for Dale Coin. Been any chatter about Jacker's test? Any chance he locks in his seat for the upcoming year? Say, love the interview with him. Need to circle back with our guy, good old uh, Jack Jack, uh, the Bean Flicker, <laughs> Jack the Bean Flicker Harvey. Um, it was really great to see Coin call him up. Trust him. I know they have had an interest in him. It seemed to me to be a perfect way non-committal way to get a feel for what it's like to work with him feedback temperament all the things that a team would be looking for in someone they're potentially interested in in working with not sure if and how much jack has to bring in terms of sponsorship i do know that he's not that guy right he's not a guy with eight million dollars to bring and therefore he's going to claim the ride with uh you know his bank account pretty good guy good connections could he bring a little bit i'm sure he could that would certainly be of interest to coin here's the thing that stood out so in the absence of not only a good veteran fast veteran looking to rebuild his career and he has a giant bank account to just tip everything in his favor in the absence of those things of being shockingly fast And having a huge amount of money to offer. Here's the only thing you can look at that scared me. Jack's obviously in the car on Monday. They had a lot of teething problems. Didn't get in a ton of laps. Therefore, they were, he was at the bottom, I think, of the 10 drivers who set times. Not a surprise. Don't hold it against him. Tuesday, when I was there, going decently quick in the morning. Didn't go, I believe, much faster in the afternoon. Ended up getting shuffled back to, I forget exactly where, 9th, 10th, something like that, whatever it was, but basically back down towards the bottom. Found more, proved the car, exactly what he's there to do, give them a good indicator of what he's capable of doing. The thing that I saw and was like, oh, man, had awesome, young, Nolan Siegel from Palo Alto, California, here in the Bay Area. Come down and test on Wednesday, the final day. IndyCar debut, never driven an IndyCar before. Would have expected Nolan, I think, as I wrote in a story, to be dead last. Everybody would have said, "Yep, exactly what we expect." As long as you don't, you know, stuff the thing into the tires or make any big mistakes. If you just simply get through your first day and are last, you're doing what we expect of you. You're here to learn, huge amount to learn, low expectations. What does he do? Runs sixth. <laughs> Runs sixth. Nearly splits the field for the, the, quote, smallest and or least defined program in IndyCar. Everybody else has their drivers. Everybody else has their everything. Is the only team that doesn't have a single driver signed for next year that we know of. Kid won th- two races, I believe, in Indy NXT last year. Championship contender, but a rookie nonetheless there. He's my title favorite for this year with HMD Motorsports. But you just throw in a lot of these caveats. This is the kid's first day in the car. How could you expect much from him? And. He sticks the thing directly in front of Aero McLaren's Alexander Rossi right behind Ray Hollerman lanigans Christian Lundgar race winner. A couple of polls last see- Like, what? Like, right there. First day. Holy crap. So, we should absolutely credit the great work Jack did Monday and did Tuesday. Nolan, without a doubt, climbed into a car that was in a much better state than it was when it rolled out of the trailer first thing Monday morning. So he climbed into something that was clearly at a really good level. I would not have expected him to take where Jack ended off at the end of Tuesday and chuck that into almost splitting the field among Penske and Ganassi and all these, right? That's the thing where I'm like, I hope Nolan's performance as a rook did not lead coin and company to go well no real reason to call jack because this kid just did things on day one that we can't ignore so um part of me wonders i know that nolan signed to hmd for the season and i'm sure they want him to compete for the season part of me wonders if Dale Coyne doesn't make a really hard pitch for the Seagulls to uh, see what they can do to get him into an IndyCar um, and to go campaign as a rookie. I can tell you this, and I know you asked about Jack, but just giving you what came out of the test, in my mind at least. I don't know how Nolan's NXT season will go. I think talent and experience-wise, he should be able to go get the championship and do it somewhat convincingly regardless of how his 2024 NXT season might go, I have no question in my mind that kid who will be like, what, 19 or 20 or something like that come 2025 will be ready to compete in IndyCar full season. I think he could do it now and suitably impress us, but I know for sure if he were to stay as planned, do another season in NXT, no matter whether he wins the title or not, This kid's showing us stuff that should have all of us standing up, paying attention, rooting him on, getting along with all the other NXT drivers. Don't get me wrong, but he's doing the things at this stage that makes us go, okay, Uh, I've seen this story before, and it's a good one, and I hope it continues and plays out the way that it should. Let's go to a not Bob Bradley i got to find out why you're not Bob Bradley. Uh, Marshall, not sure how much you'd know about the money side of it or how much you could even get into it, but while watching the uh, Rolex Twenty Fourth Friends, friends, or mainly IndyCar fans, we're wondering how much the top-level guys, like uh, Patricio Ward, Scott McLaughlin, Alexander Rossi, etc., get for doing part-time IMSA stuff. So I'd have assumed it's got to pay decently well for it to be worth their time, although it's surely also a great way to knock the rust off before showing up to St. Pete. It is. Uh that's the number one reason why a lot of drivers do it. Uh the IndyCar drivers or drivers from other series, uh full timers elsewhere. It is a fantastic way. It's a pre season it's the preseason games rolled into one, right? NFL has what is it, three or four preseason games. Get everyone kind of warmed up, tuned up, ready for the big season. IMSA does it here in a span of two weekends with the roar before the 24, which then rolls into the Rolex 24. So yeah, that's a huge benefit as for pay. Again, it, it depends who you are, your stature and how much you really want to drive. So would it be a surprise to learn 50 ish? I mean, I've heard numbers as low as 25 grand 50 start getting up into the, the big, bigger names. And this depends on the class. Right? If it's a pro am class with a wealthy gentleman or gentlewoman driver footing the big, big bill, they'd certainly come out of pocket to have a high profile driver. That's often a thing that gets said. Hey, okay, cool. Yeah, let's do the Rolex 24. It's going to cost how much? What? <laughs> More than a million dollars to bankroll the single entry? Okay, well, if I'm going to do that, I want a name. And so then teams often go hunting for current or somewhat recent F1 drivers, big name, active IndyCar car drivers. So depending upon the person funding it, depending upon whether they have a big love or passion for a certain driver, right? A little bit like rock fantasy camp. Hey, I've always wanted to play with that person. Um, they'll come out of pocket for even more. So, Hearing about one-offs getting over a hundred grand, um, those are rare instances. But yeah, I mean, if you consider all the positives about the warm-up, preseason stuff, ability to get a nice Rolex watch, uh, and yeah, to pocket some pretty decent change, it's not uh, not a bad bad thing at all. Uh, Dan Rice, you say MP. Hope you and Graham Goodwin had a good time at the Rolex. We did. Uh, was there in or around him a ton. We just didn't get a crazy amount of time together, but that's okay. You say, hey, my question relates to the crossover between IndyCar and the Rolex. What makes IndyCar drivers more amenable? I love that word, by the way. Full full marks here, Dan Rice, for the word amenable. Uh, more amenable to driving in the Rolex or even other endurance events than other racing series like NASCAR. See, I get there's a bit of crossover with ownership like, McLaren Penske Ganassi RLL and such, but is it a timing thing or IndyCar teams being more likely to uh are IndyCar teams just more likely to allow their drivers to race in other series? You're spot on about the crossover, right? If we include Meyer Shank Racing through 2023, I think what uh, half of IndyCar's full-time team owners are involved in IMSA. Um, Andretti with Wayne Taylor. Chip Ganassi, Roger Penske, RLL, as you mentioned, again, throwing shanks, so whatever number that is, my math's probably not very good, but almost half, if not half, of the full-time entrants are indeed involved. It is great, as we mentioned, for the kind of tune-up aspect as well, but why there instead of other series? It's road racing. It's familiar. Sports cars, open-wheel racing, they are obviously very different, but they're not totally dissimilar. NASCAR, as we've known forever, um, whether it's the new car or the previous gen or the one before, they just handle in such a different way that it's not something that really stands out as a instantly uh, equal or super easy thing to transition into, like taking a top-line Kyle Kirkwood, from Andretti Global in his IndyCar and him going and driving at the Rolex 24 for Vassar Sullivan in a Lexus GT car. That GT machine, even a hybrid GTP prototype, handle to a lesser degree are less fearsome to wield than an car. This is why car drivers tend to climb into these things and be instantly fast and usually instantly competitive not saying they don't take a little while to master but these are not things that are above an indycar in terms of performance or physical demand and so that's why it's pretty easy to translate something that is road racing specific truly highly tuned aerodynamics suspension everything is made for maximum road racing awesomeness easy to take a road racing monster out of any drop them in they figure it out really quickly all good nascar even on a roval or any of the road courses they do these are not vehicles and this is just what drivers have told us forever this takes a long time to wrap your head around therefore it's not like hey kirkwood we're gonna parachute you into watkins glen cool he's gonna go there and get his butt kicked despite being one of the most talented drivers in the country It's going to take a while to try and master this very different handling creature. So I think we just look at the thing historically where you go, okay, I realize that, you know, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, IndyCar stars, Marios and AJs and all kinds of folks, Allenser Juniors and whatnot, dropping in to do the Daytona 500. Kind of a cool thing, right? different era car too maybe not as complex uh, a handling thing as they are today but this is just something where if you're an IndyCar team owner it makes way more sense the sensibilities here Dan are the things that an IndyCar team owner goes oh yeah no go to Rolex go to the 24 makes total sense heck you might even be driving for us and if not you know, go drive for someone else. Um, we're, we're, we're good with that. Cause it makes you a better driver and a readier driver when our IndyCar car season starts, something like a NASCAR. Yeah. A little bit of hesitance there. I know for some team owners, especially if we're just talking ovals, like forget the road course side, which would fall into the playbook for most IndyCar drivers. You think about the Daytonas and the Talladegas and the, how's this at Indianapolis, we do not have the term, the big one when it comes to the 500, not saying we don't have big crashes, you know, once a year or every couple of years, but like, it's just not a thing for us. If you do not have the big one or the second or the third big one here in a couple of weeks at Daytona or Talladega or wherever these big super speedways in NASCAR, it's just accepted as part of what happens. That's the kind of thing where an IndyCar team owner says, yeah, I'm paying you whatever amount of money to drive for me a full season. Appease our sponsors. I don't want to risk losing you because you're pretty much guaranteed to be in an event where they have something called the big one happening. Uh, Mark Graham, you say, shortly after last year's Long Beach Grand Prix, there was talk of Kevin Kalkoven's estate wanting to sell his share of ownership in the Long Beach Grand Prix. Any word of anything coming of that? You know, If I was a smart person, Mark, I would have asked. Uh, Jim McCallion, president of the Grand Prix Association of Long Beach, uh, stopped in at Daytona. Um, Loved Jim. Known him for a long time. Genuinely loved the guy. Came in, uh, commiserated with me, and gave me me some hell as well, which I love. Um, Said, I feel for you for the length of the racer mailbag, and having to answer all those questions, many of which are extremely repetitive, and also wanted to give you hell on making the mailbag so dang long, like cut it in half, to which I said, thank you for your commiseration. Um, I hear you on the length. I don't choose the length. I don't select the questions. I answer the questions that are sent to me. But um, I am in agreement with you, because having done a few too many 10,000 word or more mailbags over the last month or two, um yeah i would love spending less of my life yeah there you go doing that so anyways uh great to see jim but if i was a smarter monkey mark i would have asked him hey by the way uh anything going on there we do know that uh the other gentle person who owns who owns the other half of the grand prix uh has said not selling not someone else can buy cal half from the estate that's great, but I'm not giving up mine. It's not for sale. Uh, it's not changing. There's no power play that's going to happen because I refuse to allow that to happen. So that's probably why it didn't occur to me to ask because it was stated very clearly. Nothing's happening, whether that is sold or not. Um, Colin Taylor, awesome question here. See, I'm not sure if this has been asked for before, but I'll ask in case it hasn't. For the Rolex 24, the term brake by wire was used a lot during the broadcast. What is that system and how does it differ from what IndyCar uses? I was also kind enough to close with saying best wishes to you, your wife, and the cats. And have the electronic intervention, if that's the way to put it, Colin, uh, of brake pressure. So... I swear I've asked this many, many, many times on the IndyCar front and I've been told it is not a thing that we do not have or will not have break by wire uh, once we go hybrid. If that has changed, I'm an idiot. But I think the last time I'm like, just double checking was like a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago and was told, nope. But if we're talking about IMSA, here's what it is. So we have the Motor generator unit, the back of the cars, connected in between or connects in between the engine and the transmission. Cars break. The MGU, this kind of big pumpkin sized mass of metal that spins, does just that. It is engaged and it's like a giant, pretty heavy flywheel that spins where the electricity is generated and then sent to the battery to be stored and then when the driver when it's deployed it gets sent from that battery that big jolt of juice goes back out through the MGU out to those rear tires puts that power to ground get that extra acceleration well when the MGU does that connecting and spinning under braking, you get a huge amount of braking assistance by it. So it engages, it really helps braking at the rear of the car, and I guess you could say from a front braking force to comparing to the rear braking force, when the MGU is engaged in harvesting, it really shifts a ton of braking force to the back of the car. Traditionally, without such things, the front brakes do a lot of the work, more than the rear traditionally. But here, when the MGU is harvesting energy, it kicks in and it's like, whoa, pretty big help all of a sudden at the back of the car. So if you think about the driver applying all that huge force with their foot to the brake pedal, they're braking at a big amount of pressure to slow the car, and then they all of a sudden get this huge help, additional help braking the rear of the car through the MGU. If that's left just the way it is, you would lock the rears really heavily. Brake by wire is an electronic pressure management system. It's an electronic system that manages the hydraulic fluid and says, okay, we're going to dial up or dial down rear brake pressure. So the driver does not have massive fluctuations in braking force and they're not having to try and do crazy millisecond by millisecond modulation of their braking pressure with their foot no way they could do it accurately as they hit the brake the car starts to slow the mgu kicks in and then they pull off some pressure off the brake but then as they continue to slow and the mgu stops doing its thing need to add more like it'd be a lot to ask any driver to have their right foot do all of that. So that's where the idea of, okay, well, let's insert some electronic uh, data, cool tech in managing the pressure, the rear of the car, the rear brake pressure. And so this is what it is. They come up with brake mapping curves. It's brake mapping saying, okay, I want the driver to be able to mash the throttle, go super hard, super fast. So we tune the engine with the engine mapping on how to do that. Great. And when they mash the brake pedal, we want it to feel like one smooth braking moment through their foot. But since we know once they start braking hard, that MGU at the back is going to potentially complicate things. We're through electronics and that rear brake pressure management we're actively doing every millisecond. We're going to dial down the pressure as we need to maintain great braking balance front to rear. Have the pedal feel basically strong and the same for the driver. And we'll take care through this electronic brake pressure management process of dialing up or down pressure, whatever we see is needed so that the driver basically, they feel the MGU doing its thing, but through their foot and through the car's very rapid deceleration, isn't really bothered or interrupted by that happening. So that's effectively what it is. That MGU throws a really cool but challenging spike in the braking process while it's harvesting. So to make sure that it actually doesn't do that from the driver's perspective. Some pretty cool electronics all working and talking together, saying, hey, we're going to manage this out back, allow you to just jump on the brakes, let us handle making sure the pressure isn't way too much up front or up out back and locking tires and flat spotting them. We'll just do it that way. So I need to get more insight on the IndyCar side, uh as to how they're doing and what they're doing there so give me a little bit of time and i will try and get more info for you uh brian tiernan you say MP any word yet on the direction any car is going to go with energy harvesting will be automatically done drivers be using a manual paddle uh you say you'd personally love to see it more in the driver's hands uh there's going to be a lot of options this is yet another thing uh, IndyCar, I know, has a really good feel for what the answer is going to be, but a final answer, um, hopefully, have that for you here in a story very, very soon. Uh, at Swinglish ish. MP with Andretti contracting to a three car team. Have you heard what's happening to the crew members on what's now the former Devlin De Francesco car? Are they moving to elsewhere in the organization? Are they leaving? What are they doing? Uh you say wondering what typically takes place when teams restructure. Uh I mean i just say the the biggest place to look. We have Wayne Taylor racing with Andretti expanding from one accurate AirX06 GTP car full time and IMSA to two. It's a team that needs a lot of people for each car, so that's one place to look for sure. Um This is a team that does not lack places for people to go. So I haven't gotten an answer yet on exactly how many people have left, but from what I had heard anecdotally, folks who were on that third car are certainly not going to be lacking for employment opportunities within. Um, But as we get closer to the IndyCar season start, uh, I'll have a little bit more about that, hopefully for you. Um Austin Taylor, any news on andretti Globals' NASCAR ambitions other than the aforementioned fun stuff with Spire? Uh not that I've heard of, but yeah, back to the earlier part. Uh, part of me really wants to hear that they will indeed be expanding there cuz I just think it's a more realistic place uh, for them to be accepted and have success. So we start to wind down here and yeah, we've gone past an hour, so I told you I was Let's go to our pal Tony coffee Says many IndyCar drivers participated in the Rolex 24. Any performances shed light on maybe their 2024 IndyCar season outlook? Don't know if I saw anything there that made me say "aha, that driver uh, sucks <laughs> and will have a bad year." And these drivers are good and they will have a good year. Tell you what stood out, Tony was awesome seeing Alex Palou again in a prototype and. I thought he demonstrated that guy's just like really special, crazy, crazy special. But no, nothing that I saw at the Rolex 24 that made me think, oh, ooh, this person's in for a good one. Uh, I think I would already expect them to be in for a good season. Um, yeah, so no real takeaways, brother. Uh, Ole O'Leary says, how do you see Linus Lundqvist getting on against fellow rookie and teammate Kiffin Simpson this year? I would expect Linus to destroy Kiffin. Uh, I mean, if he doesn't destroy Kiffin, I'll be very surprised. And that's not meant to be a criticism of Kiffin. It's just, there are two radically different stages in their career, both in mileage, but also accomplishment. So, Linus has been driving open wheel cars for a lot longer. Kiffin, not only young, very young, but he's pretty brand new to this stuff and has gone from kind of zero to a million miles an hour in a much shorter span of time than I expected. Opportunity and desire to go to IndyCar this year is what was held, so that's what they did. They have the ability to make that happen financially, so that's what's going on. Would have loved to have seen one more season of Indy NXT for him. I know that there might not have been a ton, a ton to improve. But, I mean, the kid's really good. Seen that in sports cars, LMP2s. Like, the kid's really good. I know he caught hell from a, whatever folks being signed, and he doesn't belong, and doesn't deserve, and paycheck driver and that kind of stuff paying for things. I get all that stuff. It's kind of what you expect to hear from whatever factions, but he's really, really good. Still has yet to do anything in open wheel. That makes me say great. I think another year of NXT, as most people would probably say as well, would have only helped. He's just not done anything in open-wheel racing to suggest he is in the same league as Linus Lundqvist. He's still really young and inexperienced, though, which means he has both time, in terms of physical age and maturation, uh, professional time, more laps, the ability to learn on his side. So he is not entering his rookie campaign at the same state of Accolade or preparedness as Linus is entering his rookie season. Obviously, Linus got to do, what, three races last year? Better idea of things, but also really impressed us um, in most of those outings. But Linus is coming in as an NXT champion, multiple-time junior open wheel champion. Climbed in with effectively no real warm-up, driving for Meyerschank Racing and really impressed people. I mean, I know me and I think anybody was like, "Wow, this kid's doing things in a team that had a down season, like a seriously down season. This kid was a huge little sparkle pony of optimism and achievement right off the bat. And so none of those things can be attached to Kiffen on the Open Wheel side. Coming into his rookie season of IndyCar. On the sports car side, Kid has been stellar in his role for his age. But if Linus does not mop the floor with him, I will be shocked because that is exactly what should happen. Kiffin is a classic, let's talk in 2025, 2026 driver. I like the kid. Uh, He has a ton of great people he is surrounded by and will be coached and mentored as well, if not better than any other rookie could ask for in IndyCar. He's just coming in with so much left to get and achieve that it would be unfair to say big expectations for him to show out and show well as a rookie in 2024. He needs time. And I think he will prove to be better than his critics and doubters uh, believe he is. I just don't expect to see any of that right off the bat, especially this first season. Famous last words. I hope he proves me wrong and comes and tells me I'm a complete idiot (laughs) at the season finale in Nashville. And he defies every expectation. But yeah, um, Linus, yeah, Linus and Kiffin come into IndyCar radically different stages. Uh, Ken Anderson, having seen the recent offer to members of IndyCar Nation, and I think that was like the super executive triple premier level there, Ken of IndyCar Nation, for a 75% discount, $500 tickets for the Thermal Club million dollar uh, all-star race prize thing, which go for... Uh, two grand so it was limited to the first 100 sold um so i'm wondering about how many of us bought one of the first two thousand dollar tickets i think to remember talk of indycar nation doing something for the event but nothing was mentioned when then indycar announced the ticket sales in fact i believe the number of those was limited don't get me wrong still very grateful for the opportunity to attend but to quote Hinch, the optics are quote suboptimal I had that thought as well, Ken, of like I realized that you had to be the super triple platinum elite level of IndyCar Nation fan club member to be offered one of those hundred tickets at five hundred bucks a piece. But just tell you that if I had bought a ticket to something for two grand and you told me it was being offered somewhere else for five hundred, like if it was fifteen hundred I'd still be a little grumpy, but I'd at least go, okay, uh, 500 off of what I paid is a pretty big number, but at least it's not crazy. $1,500 less than what I paid? I was with some friends when that landed in my inbox and uh i can tell you some of them may or may not have been involved in indycar running things and that kind of stuff in some degree within the paddock and they their jaws dropped at like what just thinking about folks like y'all can who paid two grand uh anyway so you close by saying indycar can't seem to help but to keep stepping on its own feet like my experience in middle school basketball, I uh, say. I hope you get some home time with your wife, Chabrel, and the cats after this weekend. Thanks, brother. Yeah, um, I get it. You know, you want to think of incentives for being a part of a, a really cool, very dedicated fan club. I get that, but it you make bitter enemies of folks who have to save a lot or really make an effort to pay for $2,000 tickets to then find that they're being made available to someone else for 500 To the folks who are wealthy enough to wear two grand, not a big deal, probably doesn't matter beyond principle, but not going to change their lives. But for the folks who just took their vacation money for the year or whatever it was to want to be able to go and see this to then learn that, strictly through being a longtime member of a what is it 75 bucks a year fan club? I think of this. What about the IndyCar fan that started following the series in 2021 or 2022? Who, through the inability to be a longtime super veteran elite IndyCar Nation member, just because they haven't known about it for very maybe they're 20 years old or who knows they just haven't had the opportunity to build up that long tenure and yet in order to go they would have to pay two grand and just don't have the ability to build that kind of elite level membership like it's those things where you go i get it but man to ken's point you said stepping on its own feet in describing this and talking about this with some very influential people in the Daytona paddock from IndyCar paddock, they were not talking about stepping on feet. They were talking about stopping, stepping on other appendages. So I get it, but come on, man. Uh, Derek Bartashek MP congrats in an alternate universe. Roger Penske calls you up and says, I need you to run IndyCar. That universe doesn't exist. Derek, I love you, though. It's so hilarious. Uh, I keep waiting for this universe uh, to get a call from Roger saying, you need to run away from IndyCar. Don't ever cover this again. Uh, Also, he says he's willing to throw a little more money at it for the right ideas. He says, with you at the helm, we're getting really silly. What changes and new things would you implement in this alternate universe to make IndyCar in the calendar the best it can be? So I don't know if I would throw anything at it. Derek, that hasn't already been mentioned. Good Lord, something, even if it has to be paid for, some sort of connection with a major streamer, gosh, that would be massively influential. Uh, We know that for sure. IndyCar has been investing more money for, I don't know, about a decade now, and it's digital strategy and platforms and all that. It is really and truly the place where you're going to connect with more people. It's not more TV advertising necessarily. It's just connecting with people where they are, letting them know you exist. IMS Productions' TV side of things, being able to create and really deploy them in a much bigger capacity through digital video plans, social media programs, It's a thing that works for sure. There are some, and I say this in all honesty, I credit her, Katie, and whomever else when I see on the IndyCar digital side, they have done some phenomenal work with what they have available to them. But this is just an area where more growth, more, more is only going to help. IndyCar's drivers never get the respect they're due for being some of the greatest in the world. Might have gone on a rant last week. No, I did it in the mailbag about I get trying to do the funny cutesy TikTok things and whatever little challenges and right make folks like and laugh and go, gee, maybe then they'll love IndyCar. I get it, totally get it. Every series is doing every sport, everything is doing it. I get it. That's the trying to keep up with everyone else type thing. But at some point in time, I also want our drivers to be revered as amazing. As, as legends, modern living legends for the better ones, I don't know if we do a fantastic job of mythologizing them. I think it's just all about cheap TikTok laughter. And you go, okay, cool, but let's balance that out a little bit. Calendar wise, I know folks, myself included, want more ovals. Yes, for sure fair amount of folks say they're sick and tired of street races, got too much, we want less. I hear you, but there's no better way to create new fan bases than to go to city streets, downtowns where people live to draw interest for sure. Again, I don't know if I have any crazy big, oh, do this one thing, and it's going to change IndyCar's entire complexion. It's just a lot of the things that we know work and will make sense to grow the series um we don't have to get into new car new this new that in depth know for sure the idea of going to a spec engine which not super love the idea nobody that i know of loves that the spirit of that but the ability to do that and allow more manufacturers to come in lease those motors without having to make their own put their names on them commit to indycar you're going to have a huge financial savings of not having to make your own motors. You can lease or buy or whatever it is, whatever they decide, through a single source supplier. But we are going to be saving tons of money by doing that. But we're going to require you to commit a very significant marketing budget to promote Car and your involvement in it. That, being able to get in a third, fourth, fifth manufacturer using their financial might, to promote IndyCar up and out of the bubble. By and large, it's Midwest bubble, something to where getting out to the coasts, which is what we used to have, where when you told folks you worked in racing through the mid to late 90s, they would say IndyCar, Indy 500. Since then, the only answer has been NASCAR. So it's been a long time since IndyCar lifted up reached out outside of that kind of Midwestern column of its greatest popularity. There's some Southern popularity in there too, but that's a huge thing of IndyCar doesn't have the money to do that with their own marketing budget, promotional budget, but you get double or triple the amount of auto manufacturers involved their financial might and marketing capabilities all of a sudden, because this has worked before and been done and had great success uh, in the latter stages of CART's existence, the CART IndyCar series through the 1990s, was through the auto manufacturers and some of those big box sponsors. Ticket giveaways, promotions in their stores, at the dealerships, at the restaurants, at the wherever. You seemingly, I know this might be a strange process or i'm sorry strange concept to process for some newer younger indycar fans but once upon a time you couldn't go to a chain restaurant or into a target walmart whatever it is you couldn't go to a 7-eleven couldn't go buy a car you couldn't go seemingly anywhere without seeing some sort of indycar representation on a placard on a menu on a sign on a something it's happened, it's been successful. There's nothing new that's being suggested here, but all of these general things, Derek, stand out as like, hey, don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's certain things in the playbook that have worked and continue to work. Please do them. So, but yeah, Raj, come on. Uh let's avoid that alternate universe. All right. Uh two questions to go. Sorry for a slightly extended episode. Uh, But, hey, uh, Chris McCary is curious how you as a journalist keep track of everything that went on at the Rolex 24 and follow those threads into the IndyCar season or the racing season in general. He says, I was thinking as I watched that I would be completely overwhelmed by the fire hose of information. It is, without a doubt, uh, (laughs) way too much. And so as things develop that are of interest in the race, Chris, you reach out and ask. It's usually PR reps. Often, especially these days, the the finer PR reps become really good at keeping the media plugged in. One example, I had one manufacturer rep veteran, right, super veteran. Uh, He is and has been awesome for a long, long time. Ryan Smith is his name. Uh, This is a practice been going on for a couple years now not a crazy amount of time but uh, went around to all the you know the major media that he knows or they're covering and said hey creating a whatsapp group for the event for the race and as developments happen if you want i can add your name to that and whether it's hey we pitted on this lap and this driver got out and this one got in and whatever or hey car's having a problem we're taking it to the garage to look hey we found this was the pro-, whatever it is add you to that event-only WhatsApp group, and there you go. That's an amazing thing. So I realize that's maybe a per-manufacturer thing or individual entry thing, but that's one way. A lot of outlets, I shouldn't say a lot of outlets, there aren't many outlets that that cover this full-time in sports cars, but for a Rolex 24, maybe even a 12-Hours of Sebring, they'll do hourly reports. I know racer did uh, my main client and others do as well. Where if you got to go take a nap and you want to find out you wake up three hours later or whatever, and you see, Hey, so-and-so is leading and they're nowhere to be found. What happened? Um, I always go straight to the hourly reports and you'll find, Oh man, that thing blew up. Oops. Or a hey, big crash or yellow or whatever. Um, go read through those. IMSA through the timing and scoring reports presented by the great Driggers family, uh, another Midwest product, um, Father Lee, Son Justin. They do these crazy, and the many, many amazing folks who support them on pit lane and spotters and such who fire an info, they generate these amazing PDFs throughout the race, uh, hourly if more, if necessary, And it chronicles everything that happened. Fastest lap by so-and-so in this class. Oh, new fastest lap um, in this class. Oh, this one's been bettered as as well. Um, Crash, yellow, penalty, pit stops, whatever it is. Um, They'll do really in-depth stuff as well. So if you need to find out what happened in hour 17, uh, you can go find out. Or if you're curious as to what happened to this car, and for whatever reason the team hasn't reported it or whatever, and you know it happened around this time, go find that in one of their reports. It's a subscription thing. It's really just for the media. But I'm telling you, if you had access to it, you'd be like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Teams also, Chris, do a pretty good job these days of, of hitting social media with developments. Again, even just the same kind of grist of the mill that I mentioned, pitted on lap so-and-so did this did that again you can look at the timestamp, kind of figure out okay cool that's you know this amount of time into the race or whatever uh so all those things are there and then the the final thing is post-race just about every team um generates a press release and they tell you by and large everything that happened the good and the bad and i always look with a bit of a quizzical eye because you know with some teams oh they pooped the bed really hard might not have even been their fault but like wow there was chaos and calamity and you read the press release and well there was mild distraction during the race and the finishing result was not as wonderful as we had hoped and you go Woo, boy for those who didn't watch and just read your press release they might think you came really close to winning but hey we saw your car on fire for half a lap and oh boy but anyways It's always fun where you see the well we're going to distance ourselves from reality and paint a picture that doesn't conform to what anybody saw but that happens so those are all the various informational things at our disposal on top of just walking out trackside and seeing and observing as for how do you keep track of every little thing you don't you simply do not so what you do is you shed things that are unimportant in the moment you look for trends. Hey, this car is starting last. Cool. Let's see where it is at three hours. Oh, hey. All right. You picked up five spots. Oh, hey. After eight hours, oh, you picked up three more spots. Okay. There might be something happening here. There could be a trend to follow, team that started last in whatever class. Hey, they're marching forward. You look at some of the pre-race favorites. Keep in mind how they're doing. Hey, all right. Really thought they were going to show out. They haven't. Okay. There's something there that's amiss. Let's find out what it is. Look at what they communicate again through uh, whether it's a press release, some put out every four hours, six hours, something. Again, look social media, uh, reach out to them directly or wander down to pit lane. And you see a driver who just climbed out of the car, you know, an engineer, strategist, whatever. You can see they're not super busy. You might, hey, what's going on? You know, I thought you guys are going to be a little quicker. It's usually, oh, BOP is terrible. But um, you pick and choose is the answer because 59 entries, 24 hours, you multiply those two with at least three drivers per car. <laughs> that is a lot of things to try and keep straight in your head. So you don't, you pick and choose. And sometimes when really remarkable things happen in the end, that weren't trending that you didn't pick up on or again just kind of hey how did you come out of nowhere to get that result? That's where a lot of backtracking and deep info diving on all through all the methods I just mentioned to try and paint that picture and understand it right as the result is happening or right after the race. That's where that goes on. And there's also the other thing you could do to there Chris which is Go to that team right after the race and go, how the heck did you do that? And you usually get a pretty amazing story out of it. So thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would love to meet the person who can keep the hour-by-hour happenings of all 59 entries in mind. Stack that across 24 hours and come back and say, oh, you had a question about car number 62 in hour 5? Well, so-and-so is in the car and this happened. I'm like, okay, you're not from Earth. We love you, but uh, you're not human. Uh, We're going to close the show with our friend, Logan Knapp, son of the great. I do mean this, great. Steve Knapp, your 1998 Indianapolis 500, rookie of the year with ISM Racing. Um, Good old Steve Knapp, cousin of one of my longtime teammates, team co-owner, manager, engineer, all that. Thomas Knapp, uh, Uncle Steve, did his... Indy car rookie test with our little Thomas Knapp Motorsports general Racing Team. Uh, what, winter of 1997 at Las Vegas Motor Speedway? And uh, our number 97, Dallara Oldsmobile. And yeah, I've told some of those stories before about Uncle Steve, but yeah, love Steve. Also, their company, Elite Engines, happened to power a whole heck of a bunch of USF Championships entries. Uh, what we call the uh, the used to call the road to Indy, but yeah, so love me some NAP family and uh, the great young Logan Knapp, who is a Jedi of engine building and ECU tuning and whatnot, says best date for beer on the Indycar calendar, past or present. It's a really easy answer, Logan, and uh, I know it. It's an answer that'll just sing to your little Midwestern heart. That would be Wisconsin. So I'm not saying the best beers all come from Wisconsin, but some of the amazing Pruday members, primarily Steve Bonnick, attends Road America and brings some of the greatest beers that he gathers from Michigan or wherever else, and we rejoice in them. And he introduced me to what became my new favorite beer, super limited supply brewed for limited time you're not going to find it pretty much anywhere for the most part that being wizard burial ground and he introduced that to me in 2022 at road america and i cracked it open and poured half of it into a cup gave it to uh the great john ewert from road america their head of communications being a hearty man and a lover of beers. And for y'all who don't know, uh, I don't drink a lot of beer. So frequency-wise, one a week would be a lot. But I savor them, and when I do have them, it is something that I can't see through. Uh, thick Belgian-type beers, double, triple Belgian. Like, that's my, that's me. That's my Josh, as my wife would say. Uh, Steve introduced me to Wizard Burial Ground, falling into that category of a beer you certainly can't see through, uh, and exactly what I turned out to love more than anything. And so I didn't know that at the time, but I looked at the can and said, clearly this is from heaven, and went over to my friend John and poured half of that beer into a cup. And he and I toasted and drank it for the first time and looked at each other and we were speaking in tongues. Uh, <laughs> phenomenal. And so Steve, because he's amazing, and now more of y'all, which is crazy. Ryan Caminetti, for example, brought a couple beers uh, for me at Daytona. Jack Kelly, who flew in from Ireland and brought them with him, brought three beers brews that he loves local special craft beers that all fell into the beers you can't see through category of dark and rich and amazing um my friend alex nunez brought a couple like i'm sitting there going i went from zero to nine beers at daytona within a span of like two days and it was a little bit later in the event so i'm like i don't know what to do here because these things are all like 10% alcohol, if not more. I'm going to be drunk for the rest of the event if I drink all these right now. So, luckily, I shared some with my friends from CoForce who we do the videos with. But I love y'all. <laughs> you About a beer you bring me crazy. Like, um, yeah, I, I would need to turn my race events into really, really committed alcohol consumption events more than anything. So, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do there. But, Logan... It's Wisconsin for sure. Um, great beers there. Great beers brought in from nearby. And I just have a, a dumb smile on my face. And I still have some that were given to me here. What was that? More than six months ago at Road America uh, by Steve and Company. And yeah, um, enjoy those very slowly and progressively because that's what they deserve. All right, y'all. So thanks for listening to my one hour podcast. And you forget about that other 30 minutes here into the show because, uh, yeah, me, not good at telling time. Appreciate y'all great questions, fun questions. (sighs) If you're the praying type, if you are someone who, uh, just isn't, but is spiritual or just wants to somehow send good magic vibes, Do that to my friend Holly Kane. She is one of my favorite racing reporters. One of my favorite people in racing. She has been so loving and encouraging throughout our cancer battle, my wife, Chabrell's cancer battle. And this is something Holly, she's not made this hasn't been, you know, kept secret, but she's been through the wars herself. She's been returned to the wars like my wife as well recently and it was really not comfortable not having holly florida based always there at the rolex 24 primarily nascar reporter but does decent amount of stuff for imsa too or with imsa covering the series grand am before that and we'll see her at some indycar events too she's again like if you are looking for a reporter who is pure class nothing but respect and just you uphold at the highest level of professionalism you're not going to find uh much better than holly but she has been in the wars again had to miss the rolex 24 doing everything she needs to fight and get better so just sharing here i should have thought to share this up front um holly Kane. find her on social media just send her some love if she deserves it so that's the farewell point of our one hour episode y'all appreciate y'all really genuinely love doing this show everything you send in and the growing family that surrounds it we'll speak to y'all here very soon